Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the student pastor here. I get the privilege of preaching this morning. We finished our time in the Ten Commandments. And if you can believe it, next week is Advent. We're here already. So we've kind of got a one-off sermon this week. And I thought it was appropriate um, as we're approaching the holiday season to, to talk about the theme of forgiveness. So if you would, would you turn please to Matthew 18. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 35. Matthew 18, verses 21. We're going to see Peter's question followed by the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'm going to read our text this morning, and I'll pray, and we will jump in. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and the Holy Spirit to work through this text into our hearts this morning. You have forgiven us so much, and yet forgiveness is so hard. Enable us to hear this and to understand it from our hearts. Let us forgive. In your name we pray. Amen. As we enter into this holiday season, for some of us, this is a season filled with joy, filled with making memories together, maybe sitting around the Thanksgiving table, going around saying all the things you're thankful for and laughing. You're making memories of going and cutting down a Christmas tree and putting it up and decorating it together. And then for some of us, maybe not so much. Maybe the season is filled with a little bit less joy. Maybe your family dynamic looks a little bit closer to the movie that's probably on endlessly of Christmas Vacation. Maybe you've got your own Aunt Bethany who can't really hear all that well, who might make the jello and mix in some cat food with it, who may, when it's her turn to say the blessing, she might say the Pledge of Allegiance instead. Maybe you've got your own Uncle Lewis who doesn't seem to have a single nice thing to say to you and who may or may not go light his cigar next to your favorite Christmas tree and thereby setting it on fire right there in your living room. And of course, we've probably all got our own Cousin Eddie 
who comes out of nowhere and shows up with his family in his RV and parks it in front of our house. He doesn't really understand boundaries all that well. He really says whatever's on his mind. And he doesn't exactly understand that you can't just pour RV waste directly into the ground. (laughs) If that's your family, for those of you living in that dynamic, aren't the holidays a lot easier if we just play nice? If we just fake forgiveness and we move on with our lives? But can we really fake forgiveness if we have experienced deep wounds? How can you play nice and move on when the pain is still there? Even broader than family dynamics, if you look at our culture's view of forgiveness as a whole, is what you're going to see is a very stark outlook on forgiveness. Some would say forgiveness is a complicated idea, if not an outdated idea. And some would even say that forgiveness itself is immoral. They would say forgiveness is a tool used by abusers to keep them from justice. In reading Timothy Keller's new book on forgiveness, which I highly recommend, it's a really good book, he overwhelms you with the stark negative outlook on forgiveness that many in our culture have today. In June of 2020, he talks about a New York Times author who tweeted, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. And you know, she received so much backlash from that tweet that she had to delete it. A tweet about how no one would forgive you. And so she later would respond in an interview, I see in American culture how offended people seem by the very idea of forgiveness itself. They seem to find it immoral, and I think that is very disturbing. And it is. It is very disturbing. Living in today's culture, forgiveness can become, can become to feel unnatural to us. If we are honest, deep down, we might even feel that it is unrealistic or not worth the effort. Is there such a thing as real forgiveness? Is reconciliation possible? Is forgiveness worth the headache? Isn't playing nice and just saying, bless your heart, so much easier? The feeling was not unique just to our culture. And if we look at our text today, Jesus is speaking exactly to this in his culture. And as we go through our text, we're going to see Jesus' response to Peter's question, and we're going to follow along the path of forgiveness. And we're just going to take two stops along the way. First, the price of forgiveness, and second, the process of forgiveness. Along the path, the price of forgiveness and the process of forgiveness. So first, look with me at verse 21. We're going to see the price of forgiveness. Notice that before we jump into our parable, we see a question from Peter. And it's kind of a good guy question. Peter is being a very good guy here. He's being very generous. He asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Wow, seven whole times. And and in the culture of this day, uh, it was often taught by the tradition that you only needed to forgive someone three times if they did the same thing to you. If, you. if they did something to you and you forgave them and they did it again, you forgave them and you did it again, you forgave them, after that, it's off. All bets are off. You're able to continue to move on with your life. But here, Peter is talking about a brother. Someone so close to him has sinned seven whole times and he's forgiven him over and over. And surely on that eighth time, Jesus, enough is enough. It's time to move on. It's time to just simply ghost them, remove them from everything, block them from everything, and move on with our lives. But shockingly, Jesus responds with the hyperbolic number. Do you see? 
He says not seven times, but 77 times. This doesn't mean that we carry a little notepad in all of our back pockets and we're like, all right, you didn't do the dishes again. We're up to 76 one more time. No, that's not what he is saying here. He's not telling us to count. He is saying forgiveness is not a formula. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. Forgiveness is the path of the Christian, and it is a costly path. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. And as we look at this parable, we're going to see the price of forgiveness. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And we, in this parable, we see a king who is, is trying to settle his books. He's settling his books, and all of a sudden he notices there are a few zeros missing, a lot of zeros missing. And one of his servants owes him 10,000 talents. So put this in modern-day amounts. One talent is equal to 6,000 denarii. And a denarii is equal to a worker's daily wage. And if you're doing the quick math here, that means that one, ta- one talent is worth 20 years' wages, and 10,000 talents is equal to the wages of a worker who has worked over 200,000 years. This is billions of dollars, billions with a B. This is a huge debt. And understandably, the king is very upset about finding this and seeing the irresponsibility of one of his servants. But notice how the story takes a shocking turn in verse 26. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. We see a couple of things here. First of all, we see that the servant seems to either be a fool or to think that his king is a fool. Because if you notice, he says, have patience on me. I will pay billions of dollars of debt. Uh, not likely, right? You could work for all of your life and all of your kids' lives and all of their kids' lives, and you probably wouldn't even hit the principal at all. This is billions of dollars of debt, an, un, an unimaginable amount that he would never be able to pay off. But even more astounding is the mercy of the king. You would expect this king to see this servant, to look him in the eye and say, you are going to jail and I am going to throw away the key. And instead, the king forgives this immeasurable amount of debt. And by doing so, that debt just doesn't disappear. He takes the debt onto himself. This action, this moment of mercy and grace does not make sense. It seems impossible. Why would the king do this? Why would he pay such a price for this undeserving servant? When I first became a Christian, I went to a discipleship program, and they had us read a couple different books. And one book that really stuck out to me was a book by Jerry Bridges. And in it, he has this uh, simple example that he used that always has stuck with me. He talked about how uh, we often might see a soldier do something really heroic, something so heroic that he would get a medal where He's in a a foxhole with his brothers and his comrades, and someone throws a grenade, and seeing a moment and an opportunity, he he makes the selfless decision to run over and to fall on the grenade and sacrifice himself to save his comrades. And that's an amazing and heroic moment that is worthy of the greatest honor. But if you look at the biblical picture of love and what Jesus has done to us, the biblical picture of what Jesus has done, it's like an American soldier being in the foxhole, getting up, 
jumping out of the foxhole and running across the battle line and jumping into the enemy's foxhole and jumping on a grenade to save their life. That is the biblical picture of love. And when we look at this parable, who are we to identify with? Who are we in this story? We are the servant who has racked up a billion-dollar debt. This is the bad news. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for us to try and pay off this billion-dollar debt would be like us trying to train our vertical so that we could jump higher in hopes that eventually we might be able to jump to the moon. It is impossible, right? We would never be able to pay off this debt. But our journey through forgiveness begins when we see the good news. That while we were still enemies, Scripture tells us, Jesus jumped out of the foxhole and ran to save us. He crossed the battle line, and he jumped to save us from our sins and simply because of his grace and mercy. Our path to forgive those that we have horizontal relationships with begins when we first see this vertical relationship and the forgiveness that we have received from God freely and from his mercy. This grace and mercy was costly. It's not a naive form of forgiveness in any way. He did not simply look past our debt. His holiness and his justice demanded payment, but his love and his mercy offered that payment for us. On the cross, we see perfectly the love and the justice of God displayed. Jesus, while he was dying on the cross for us, called out to his Father and he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You see that? His love and his justice in that moment for us. And we read that in Colossians 2, this wonderful verses from Paul where he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen? The message has a, a version of this that I really love. It says, think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. Timothy Keller comments on this truth. He says, When I know that I am the recipient of this kind of costly grace, when I know Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me, there, that's what changes me. Understanding the cry of Jesus on the cross is the key to personal transformation. And it is the great key to the work of human forgiveness and reconciliation. This is where the path of forgiveness starts. So maybe if you are sitting around with friends and family this holiday season and you're thinking to yourself, how am I ever going to forgive them? How could I even start this path? Well, it starts from first drinking from the well that is Christ's forgiveness for us. It starts with hearing the provoking question that Jesus asked at the end of the parable. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So if the path of forgiveness starts with seeing this great price that God paid for our forgiveness, then where does it lead? What does real forgiveness even look like? Next, let's look at the process of forgiveness. Now, when talking about something as painful and as difficult as forgiveness, I think sometimes it's helpful to first talk about what forgiveness is not. Because we live in a culture that has lost forgiveness and in many ways rejects forgiveness and has a lot of mixed messages to say what forgiveness is. So one, one message that you might have heard about forgiveness that is not forgiveness is the idea of forgive and forget. 
Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Unfortunately, often forgive and forget often looks like enable and ignore. Look back at our passage. Look at verse 24, and I want you to notice something. Look at the process of forgiveness that the king is going to go through. Starting in verse 24. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now from that first step of forgiveness, what we can see is that forgiveness begins with honesty. The first step in the process of forgiveness is honesty. The king has the servant brought before him and notice that the debt is named. This teaches us that forgiveness starts with honesty and that we start by telling the person how they have hurt us, how they have sinned against us, and the wounds that we have felt. We do not simply forgive them and ignore them through excuse making or kind of half-truths about what has occurred. Forgiveness is not minimizing what has happened, condoning it, or saying it is not a big deal. The only way to cleanse a wound is to first open it up. And that part stings. In Luke 17, Jesus tells his disciples, if a brother sins against you, the first step is to rebuke them. That is not forgiving and forgetting. That is courageous honesty. Sometimes honesty may mean pursuing legal action. It may mean preventing future abuse. It means doing the most loving thing for them, which starts the process of rehabilitation, which is being honest about what has occurred. Second in the process of forgiveness, after honesty, is compassion. Look at verse 27. So first the debt is named, and now out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. Do you see that phrase, out of pity for him? If you've read the Gospels, you would see this word used over and over of Jesus, actually. It's a word that could be translated compassion as well. When Jesus saw the crowds when they were hungry, the word was, was he had compassion for them, or he had pity for them, the same exact word. When he saw that they were sick and needed healing, he had compassion for them. He has compassion on this man. He thinks of the man's situation and his vulnerability, and instead of looking him only as wicked and deceitful, he treats him as a human being. Sometimes when people sin against us, it's so much easier for us to just label them and to just remove them from our lives and to close the case. But compassion forces us to slow down and to understand that hurt people hurt people. It forces us to slow down and to not jump straight to revenge or resentment. And if our culture tells us that we have every right to just cancel them and to resent them and have revenge on them, we slow down and we first have compassion on them. And third in this process, after honesty and compassion, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. Look how the king amazingly took on the debt, and vowed to pay the bill himself. So too, when we forgive someone, we bear the cost of that forgiveness. Timothy Keller says, But in all situations, when wrong is done, there is always a debt, and there is no way, no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Either you make the debtor hurt by pay, either you make the debtor pay by hurting them, until you feel things are even, or you pay by forgiving and absorbing the pain within yourself. When we cancel the debt, we refuse the right to have revenge. We refuse to make them sufficiently feel bad until things are, are even, right? We lay down our opportunities to be self-righteous when we are around them. And we refuse opportunities to gossip about them and what they have done. And even though they do not deserve it, we do not give in to temptations to resentment. 
This is a costly process. As one author put it, forgiveness can be like buying an expensive gift for someone on credit. The gift is received in one moment when you say to the person, I forgive you, and enjoyed from there on, but the giver will continue to pay unseen until the full debt is satisfied. These three steps in the process of forgiveness we can control, but this last step, sadly, we cannot control. And you see it's the fourth step of opening the door for reconciliation. Notice how, notice how the king releases the servant. He's actually giving him the opportunity here to work as a servant again. Do you see that? But unfortunately, what do we see about the servant? We see in his response, you notice how he goes and he finds another servant who owes him a debt of much less value. And here he is choking the man. Do you see that? He's choking him. And then we have the exact same words that were said before to the king, said from this other servant. And in response, he refuses and throws them into jail. He has revealed himself as not understanding the forgiveness that he has received. He has revealed himself as unrepentant and wicked in his cruel treatment of another debtor. And therefore, the king responds with judgment. As one author put it, reconciliation and restoration are conditional. They're conditional on the person's repentance, which is genuine sorrow over their sin and turning from their sin toward God. They're conditional on a humble willingness to accept the consequences. And grasping whether someone who has hurt us is repentant can be a very difficult thing for us. And one thing that I've found helpful in my own life is looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism's definition of repentance. Because if you ever have looked at it, every single word there is chosen very intentionally and can be very helpful in this process of restoration. Hear, hear this and, and, and look at every single word in, the, in this phrase and understand its depth. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. You see the richness of that definition of repentance? Do you notice all the things of false repentance that it leaves out as well? Do they hate their sin? Are they turning away from it and unto God? Or are they simply sorry that they were caught? Restoration of relationship and trust is an immensely difficult process that we might not experience on this side of heaven. But when it does happen, it is a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel. Nelson Mandela is a person whose name is often comes up when the topic of forgiveness is talked about. He left a legacy of forgiveness, and he's famous for saying resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemy. And when he was actually imprisoned for 27 years for fighting racial injustice in South Africa, and during his time in prison, he endured terrible conditions, just awful conditions of the prison. And when he was finally released from prison, he could have responded with resentment or looking for revenge, but he ended up responding with forgiveness because forgiveness offered a future for him and for the country. And he is quoted as saying, I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, and I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Mandela knew the process of forgiveness was costly, but a life filled with resentment and looking for revenge was a worse prison. Have you been freed from the prison that is bitterness 
and hatred. Maybe ever, as I've been talking about this, a specific person or a name has been in your mind and you've been thinking about your relationship with them. How do you know if you have a relationship that might be in need of reconciliation? There were some questions in the back of Keller's book in his appendix that he, gave, he kind of gave as little uh, clues that you might have a relationship that you might be in need of forgiveness or restoration. And he said this, Do you find yourself rolling your eyes when you see someone? Do you find it satisfying when you hear of them having a problem? Do you find that most things they do are irritating? Do you find yourself feeling awkward around them? Are you starting to avoid them altogether? And if you get a chance to pass along negative information about them, do you seize it and enjoy it? Do any of these register for you? Maybe there is someone in your life. Maybe you like the idea of forgiveness, but those steps that I listed, maybe some of the steps in particular you have a hard time with. I think in our culture of the Bible Belt, I think truth-telling especially can be a difficult thing for us, right? It's so much easier to just be like, bless their heart, and continue on with this surface-level friendship, a surface-level form of forgiveness. It's so much easier to play nice. I've been going through a Bible, stu- a Bible study with some of our high schoolers, and we're looking specifically at the honesty of Jesus. And if you do that, looking through all the Gospels, what you'll notice is that Jesus doesn't seem like he would fit in in the Bible Belt very well. He's he's sitting there at a feast uh, that he's been invited to, so he's a guest at the dinner table, and then he goes on to tell a parable about what kind of guests should actually be invited to the dinner table. And then another time, he's sitting there with with a Pharisee, and a woman is coming and crying at his feet and pouring perfume on his feet, and he's saying, you know, this is actually how I should have been treated when I went to your house, right? He is, he is not afraid to have some bold, courageous honesty into his relationships. He spoke very openly and confrontationally to the Pharisees, but he did so because it was the most loving thing he could do to them, and he did so in a loving way. You know, for other of us, we might be a little bit too much on the truth-telling side, We might need the compassionate side, right? We're we're not unafraid to go tell someone what they need to hear, but maybe we need to first treat them with compassion as well. Or maybe for you, canceling the the debt is the most difficult part. You may say that they are forgiven, but you still find yourself treating them as if they have more to pay. We can sometimes imply that I forgive you, but you owe me a lot for this to be true. Forgiveness is a costly path but it is possible because of what Christ has done for us. The more we look at the cross and the final words of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, the more we are able to forgive. I want to close with this story that uh, author and counselor Dan Allender tells in his book, The Healing Path. He talks about in the first year of his marriage, he had been so angry at his wife that he got angry and he threw this vase on the ground, this expensive China vase that they had been given for their marriage, and it just shattered everywhere. And so he stormed off in his anger, and then later he just felt this terrible shame internally about it. And so secretly he was saving up this money and tried to buy the closest thing. He couldn't find the exact vase, but he found one similar to it. And so he came home with this vase, and he was going to give it to his wife, but she's like, no, please, no. And she made him return it. And then one day he came home, and sitting there on the dining room table was the original vase. And the wife had painstakingly glued together every single piece of the vase. And so he looked and he saw, and there was just this spiderweb lines throughout the vase. And he said this, I'd felt small and ugly for ruining one of my wife's treasures. But when I saw the restored vase, 
I felt as if she had given me a bittersweet draft of grace. She had not only forgiven me, but she had given us a new treasure that was both broken and whole, ruined and redeemed. And every time I look at that broken but healed vase, I feel a surge of hope, for it is for us both an icon of redemption. And so it is with all of our relationships. When we experience restoration on this side of heaven, every single one of those restored relationships is a picture of the redemption that we are offered through Christ. Forgiveness and reconciliation are painful, but they are life-giving and life-changing. And it is possible through what Christ has done for us. Let us pray. Father, your grace and a mercy is astounding, and it is hard to understand. But Lord, let it change our hearts in the deepest parts of our hearts and enable us to forgive those that have hurt us. Help us to see all that you have forgiven in us. In your name we pray. Amen.